Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of the Life After Love Gone Wrong podcast. Today's episode is Cry Your Heart from Adele's 30 album. That's our title. And I have a special guest with me, Dr. Cynthia Lishik. Hi, Dr. Lishik. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little history about Dr. Lishik. She's got quite an impressive CV. Um, she's a licensed professional counselor with a focus in the field of trauma, mental health, domestic violence, battering, coercive control, rape, sexual trauma, MST, war trauma, and child welfare related issues, and has been doing that over the past three decades. As clinical director and counselor at Main Street Counseling, she provides clinical supervision as well as individual and group modalities of trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed, culturally competent, person-centered counseling using an eclectic mix of techniques from evidence-based talk therapy and from creative arts therapy practices. Dr. Lishik's career pathways included work as a forensic psychologist, a published author, systems change agent, policy writer, curriculum program developer, domestic violence specialist, as well as an educator, trainer, and adjunct professor in the areas of psychology, sociology, and criminal justice. Most recently, she served as a researcher lead psychologist for Rutgers SSW Institute for Families. And during the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, she spent nine years working to prevent suicide, functioning as the director of psychological health and mental health, subject matter expert for the New Jersey National Guard, EAP, advising commanders and providing trauma assessments, as well as crisis counseling. She also wrote her dissertation, sorry, her doctoral dissertation on patterns of dating abuse and provided the first empirical support for Dr. Evan Stark's theory of coercive control. So I am quite thrilled to have uh, Dr. Lishik with us today. And although we don't have nearly enough time to go through all of the elements of domestic abuse and for Dr. Lishik to impart all of her knowledge upon us. I think that we will certainly hit the key points and hopefully you all get some valuable information from today's uh, episode. So Dr. Lishik, let's start out with something basic. You know, can you describe types of domestic violence for our listeners? Absolutely, uh, thank you. Um, so I think part of the problem that we come run into is that um, people may not recognize, women may not recognize that they're caught in these coercive control domestic violence type relationships because there was not a physical episode of a, a physical assault. And yet the other features of coercive control, um, the other strategies uh, on the spectrum are certainly in place and they feel that something's wrong, but because they weren't perhaps punched um, or kicked uh, with some type of overt physical abuse, um, they are they don't feel like they're you know necessarily in an abusive relationship, but they know something's wrong. And so coercive control domestic violence is different because it doesn't have to involve physical uh, violence, although it can, and it does at times. Um, there there may be uh, basically uh, a pattern of um, strategies and tactics that coerce and manipulate the victim into submission. Basically, the coercive controller uh, uses their pattern of strategies and tactics uh, to make the victim do something that she doesn't want to do 
or uh, if they, the um, abuser uh, forces her to do something that he wants her to do. Uh, and it stops her uh, from really growing and from flourishing and expressing herself, uh, her sense of self and who she is. Um, so uh, the way that the, the pattern works is that she's often isolated from supports who uh, may tell her that something's wrong in the relationship. Uh, she may be isolated also from resources to help herself uh, get separated, uh, get safe. Um, he may enlist some types of surveillance over her, um, some types of monitoring, uh, otherwise known as stalking. He may use a low jack in her car. He may use her telephone uh, tracking device and set something up on an app to track where she is by virtue of her telephone. She may not even know that that app has been uh, enlisted. Um, there's often intimidation, threats, um, verbal threats, uh, facial expressions, um, and those threats can be to her bodily integrity um, in terms of pushing, shoving, um, holding her down, stopping her from leaving when she wants to. It could be threats to her ruin her career, ruin her reputation. It could be threats to her children. It could be actual attacks on her children. We call that tangential partner abuse. Um, it could be uh, threats or harm to her pets. All of those things are parts of intimidation and their coercion to make her do something she doesn't want to do or stop her from doing something she does. It can include degradation, but beyond name calling. Not only does he call her a dog, like a dog, he'll treat her as though she is a dog, make her eat off the floor, not allow her to sit on the furniture, those kinds of things. Um, there's an enormous number of rules. They're often unwritten, although there have been abusers that actually force the victim to write the rules down and put them up on the refrigerator. Um, and what she's ending up doing is choosing from among a set of constrained options that are defined by the abuser as to what she is allowed to do and not allowed to do. And she's trying to pick the least worst one because all of the choices are not really uh, good choices. They're not necessarily safe choices. And she has to try to pick what the safest choice is. And he's defined the safest choice as doing exactly what he says for her to do. In picking from those constrained options, um, she's always assessing risk. Constantly in her mind, she assesses, is it safer to stay or is it, is it as safe to stay as it is to go? Um, and oftentimes when she leaves, the violence may escalate or it may appear for the first time, um, but it will escalate because the abuser's losing control once she's out of the relationship or has moved away. And so hence the violence increases, the stalking increases in order to get her back. But there may be promises, there may be some of that honeymoon stage that we used to talk about in the cycle of violence. It's just that the cycle's been expanded and often we don't see a honeymoon phase with hearts and flowers and promises on there do it again. Um, and instead, we just see a cooling off period, a reprieve. So the victim takes a breath and then it starts all over again. But the, but the, the rules are always in place. They don't ever leave. So it's not really a cycle. It's an ongoing thing.
um, it's an ongoing entity. Her survival-based thinking really is something I've labeled percepticide. And what that involves is an internalization of the responsibility for really everything that goes wrong, everything that the, uh, or everything that is wrong according to the way the, the abuser has defined it. So she internalizes how he thinks as a way to survive and tries to anticipate what he's gonna do next so that she knows, okay, if I do this, maybe he won't do that. And so she's, she's constantly estimating risk. She is feeling unsafe. She is feeling often terrorized, uh, degraded, worthless, and um, it's very difficult um, to function in that relationship if it's, you know, if the assaults are occurring over a length of time. So let me ask you, because you're, you're using the pronouns, um, she as the victim and he as the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess or assume that, you know, this is also violence that can be with the role switched, that men experience this violence as well. I, I think that this is this type of coercive control pattern by and large is um, enlisted by male perpetrators, but it can be enlisted by a female perpetrator. And certainly in gay and lesbian relationships, um, you know, male to male or female to female, there is the coercive control pattern executed. So yes, um, those roles can be switched. But by and large, when we talk about escalating physical violence that's involved in the coercive control pattern, by and large, we see the majority of uh, victims to that escalating physical violence are females and the uh, majority of abusers uh, using that escalating physical violence and coercive control are male. And so the, the, both the crime statistics as well as the emergency room statistics support that uh, this is a, really a gendered crime, but it, it can be that the roles are switched. Yes, ma'am. And in my practice, I have I have taken note that over the last you know nearly 20 years, coercive control specifically in the realm of domestic violence has become more prevalent in cases. And I have seen it span across varying socioeconomic educational levels. And I'm wondering if you have any comment on why that is. Well, we're we're more cognizant of the term coercive control um, over the last 20 years, which is how long it has been almost since I wrote. It's 22 years since I wrote my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the book Coercive Control came out in 2007, I believe, by Dr. Evan Stark. And so what what Dr. Stark did was to really encompass all of the strategies that have been talked about on the power and control wheel that has been utilized um, in domestic violence shelters for probably 40 years at least, um, which came out of the Duluth model originally uh, for batterers intervention treatment. Um, the term coercive control um, is becoming more mainstreamed now and there is more and more research now to support that theory. How are the courts reacting to this type of domestic violence, which I think is oftentimes harder to demonstrate both as a, the, you know, the victim and as the counsel representing the victim, harder to demonstrate um, 
this pattern without really having an analysis and evaluation of, of you know the types that you have performed forensically you know is there is there enough training what can we do to educate you know not only lawmakers but the judges who are sitting on our bench as well as you know victims and other uh, professionals i believe that more training is necessary um coercive control is is finding its way into policies into the law Hawaii and California have passed laws. Connecticut is about to pass a law on coercive control. We have um, a law on criminal coercion that has really not been charged. So I do think that police need to be more cognizant of how to utilize and and capture the crimes that are would fall under that law. And um, I think that um, as judges are trained, uh, police are trained, law enforcement, court staff, probation officers, um, uh, psychologists, social workers, custody evaluators. As those individual groups uh, get more and more training on coercive control and how it's uh, formulated, um, they're better apt at identifying it. and. There are, uh, through the AFCC, Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, uh, very specific guidelines about how to conduct a custody evaluation that includes a thorough uh, examination for coercive control uh, throughout, including the safety, uh, specifically focused on the safety of the uh, adult and child victims. Um, throughout the uh, the evaluation. So uh, I believe the policies that are written for DCPMP focus specifically on coercive control and how to capture it. So I do think that our systems are getting s some of that um, training. Uh, but I think that, you know, as people turn over in various jobs and um, you know, move on, a whole new set of workers come in, a whole new set of judges come in, and that training needs to be repeated uh, again and again. Okay. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I, you know, I've said for a while now that having dealt with several cases which involve coercive control and, um, you know, middle class to higher net worth families here in New Jersey, I feel that there is a disconnect or some level of dismissiveness when you present a victim who is educated and you know again lives a middle class to upper middle class lifestyle and the perpetrator is you know in my experience primary bread maker mm -hmm. um, and appears or presents atypical for what many people think is the stereotype for an abuser you know, meaning that they are clean cut and um, again, educated, well-spoken, um, higher level jobs, um, you know, good earning capacity, and that there's just, a, um, in my experience, you know, judges of both genders not wanting to get into how those issues of coercive control may impact and affect a victim's actions not only during a marriage, but during the course of a, divor of a divorce process, because the trauma doesn't go away 
when somebody files for divorce, as you mentioned earlier, the trauma can sometimes or oftentimes increase. And, you know, without, and it takes, you know, sometimes years, I would imagine, of, of proper therapy for, for somebody to really move past what they have experienced and their fears and, and their concerns. And so the, the system really has a gaping hole there in the understanding of that. Yes, because the, it's it's not just um, it's not just that they need the proper therapy or may need the proper therapy, uh, but they need the safety of the system protecting the continuation, protecting them from the continuation of that coercive control pattern into the separation, because at that point, that's when the children are used as weapons uh, against the victim. And um, it's and they're weaponized. And so it's that's uh, tangential, um, you know, uh, coercive control using children to to um, harm the victim and it harms the children, uh, you know, directly and indirectly in terms of being uh, having to be reporters uh, saying what's going on in mom's house, who's she talking to, who's she on the phone with. Um, who's she going out with, et cetera. Uh, so these kinds of things that, that um, the children are, are involved in. Um, and the children themselves of their own volition, you know, I had one, one uh, child victim go to talk to the judge and the, the uh, abuser had placed himself on the bench outside the judge's chambers. And right. the child went in and he told the judge, I want to live with my father. Um, who had been abusing his mother and he got in the car and he told his mother, I told the judge I wanted to live with dad because I want him to stop abusing you and maybe that'll be what, what it'll take. And yes. so the kid is essentially throwing himself under the bus um, in order to protect his mother. And to understand some of the stances that these children take, that's one of them, but it can also be that they're going to uh, identify with the abuser and attack their mother. And when she tries to make him do homework, you know, he says, oh, yeah, you're going to try to make me do your homework, do my homework. Well, I'll tell dad you went out and you went right, with this one or you did that. And so they have now internalized the abuser's pattern of coercion and control and they're using it on their mother. And so this is something else that we've seen in terms of the way that children are impacted by this particular harm. Yeah, I agree with that. I've also seen that, and I and I assume, um, or I would hope that people who do the work that you do with regard to this type of trauma and domestic abuse, you know, work hand in hand with the experts, the forensic evaluators who are determining custodial situations, whether it's a parenting time um, schedule or an actual situation for custody. There needs to be, you know, a, a dialogue. I would presume um, between those experts about what is really best for the family as a whole and especially for the child or children involved. Through the work of AFCC and through um, the National Council on Juvenile and Family Court Judges, there have been uh, discussions of the, the need for um, a call for um, sole custody to the victim of coercive control because it's impossible for that victim to be safe and try to uh, make decisions about the child's welfare going forward 
uh, and trying to do that with a coercive controller is impossible because of the way that they think, which is why, it, you know, the Duluth model in terms of the early work that was done and how that was a com coordinated community response that included the victim, um, that's one of the, the uh, uh, issues is that's, you know, that was a 52-week uh, intervention, batter intervention program. And, um, you know, it takes time to change that mindset around. It's not like a, an eight-week anger management course is going to help. In fact, if anything, it makes the abuser um, more able to control themselves in public. Um, and some of the work by John Gottman, who's a communications researcher um, and relationship re uh, researcher, uh, you know, found that there's, you know, some two types uh, he identified in terms of the communication. One's the pit bull who's snarling and screaming and et cetera. And the other one was the cobra. And so the cobra, you know, is very able to, you know, often uh, manage their their uh, persona that's public. And it's the private one that's never seen that is the terrifying one. But publicly, they look calm and put together in court. And the pit bull, on the other hand, is the one that fires, you know, attorneys after attorneys after attorneys and, you know, just never is satisfied with anything. And it's, you know, snarling and screaming. And so the the victim often, you know, uh, is, is um, you know, uh, cannot communicate with either one of these individuals um, uh, in a in a shared parenting type role. We're running out of time here, and this has been really great. And, and as I said earlier, I think that we could probably, you know, speak for hours on this subject. I know we're both passionate about it, but I think as we sign off, I'd love for you to be able to give some resources, um, places where information, practical advice can be found for either, you know, anyone listening who's a victim or practitioners or or judges that might want to learn more about this specifically. If you believe you're in one of these relationships and you need support, you need information, you can call the domestic violence hotline here in New Jersey and they will route your call to the, the specific domestic violence program in your area, in your county. Um, so, and anyone on that hotline can answer all kinds of questions. They, they often have a legal uh, uh, person within that, that uh, program that can um, help you, not, not necessarily represent you as a lawyer, but help you with uh, filing a restraining order. And even if you go to the court, the court itself can t you know, help you walk you through how to file a restraining order. Um, if if you decide that that's something that will be helpful to you. Some victims decide not to get a restraining order because it's too dangerous. And the majority of victims don't ever call um, police, but the police are supposed to be uh, helping uh, victims. And you can record incidents of harassment, violence, and coercive control, uh, those kinds of things that are going on, surveillance, intimidation, threats. You can report those incidents to police and not necessarily um, demand a, an arrest. Um, so that that is something that at least if the incident is reported, it's reported, you know, in the legal system. But the majority of victims really are just um, 
you know, not going to call police. And so the domestic violence hotline, I believe, is probably the, the best place. The uh, um, There's a national organization uh, to end domestic violence as well. Yep, and they, they I follow them on social media, so they have Instagram, I believe, and Twitter pages where you can follow them. And I know that JBWS, which is another New Jersey-based program, they also counsel people on safety exit plans. Yes. Um, so that's something that some, you know, somebody might want to consider. Yes, right over the phone. Mm-hmm. Right, that, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, Think about those things before they make any steps, you know, to find at least one person, if possible, that they can confide in who can hold information for them, whether it's documentation or recordings. Mm -hmm. There is a new program out, which the name is escaping me, but I will put it in the notes when we transcribe the podcast that is available to people that's, you know, a cloud-based program for victims where they can yes information. It's fairly new, but, you know, being careful on what is on their phone, obviously, or even if they have access to their own cell phone is often a problem. So, you know, being able to go through uh, the Internet and safely search these things, you know, whether it's in private mode or or going to a public library and using a computer there, you know, there are options. You just have to carefully think through um, them. And don't let fear paralyze you from making a step forward because there's ways to safely exit the situation. I, I think that that's the hope that victims should take away from this. Um, is that you don't have to live your life this way forever. There are resources and, you know, I think the first step is for anything we do, right, is often the scariest. Yeah. And the and the safety plans, they'll talk to you right over the telephone uh, mm-hmm. on the hotline. They'll talk to you right right there about safety planning, about how to connect up with the uh, the legal person in the court, about you know um, all kinds of a- additional resources that you might need. Um, if you need to go in shelter, they'll help you set that up. Um, I do think it's important, as you mentioned, Sandra, that they make sure they erase their their uh search histories uh there are escape buttons on some of these websites the the uh domestic violence website here in new jersey there are escape buttons so that you can just press it and exit out without any trace so i think that you do have to think about that because monitoring surveillance um, and oftentimes it's an interrogation that uh, unearths the plan for, you know, what she's doing. So, um, you know, it, it may not be that they actually have found any evidence. It's just they 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 peck around f- with questions uh, during what I consider an interrogation in order to get information. And then they watch your reactions and go with that. And you may actually give it away if if you're if you're not prepared so you have to prepare yourself Um, but victims are very good at understanding the the level of safety and um, the level of danger that they need you know what they need to do in response to that and that's oftentimes why they stay or and or why they return because they're threatened um, or they're promised things that they don't end up seeing or getting um, but they return on average seven times but if they've 
if they've left once, that, that, that means they can leave for good um, at some point. Uh, but it may take a couple of tries, usually because they don't have access to the uh, resources that they need in order to stay separate. Well, thank you so much. This has really been just so important and such a wonderful conversation that we've had. And I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, anybody who's interested, the Life After Love podcast can be found anywhere where you listen to podcasts, the Apple Store, Google. It's also housed on the Fox Rothschild website. And um, you can follow me on Twitter at NJFamLaw, or I have a Facebook page and an Instagram account, Ask Sandra Fava, where some of this information is posted regularly. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>